0: Hello and welcome to i 3 Robotics Podcast. Hello, Fab. Thanks so much for joining us in this podcast. Such an honor to have you.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Thank you, thank you. So I'd like to ask you first, how, how you'd like to define yourself uh, for the audience who for the first time listening to you?
1: Sure, yeah, I'd be happy to describe myself on both a professional level and on a personal level. Professionally, I'm a researcher, I'm an academic technologist, entrepreneur. I enjoy thinking about moonshot ideas and also investigating them to their core with with scientific rigor, but then taking them out of the lab and deploying them in the real world for broad impact. Professionally, I um, spend most of my time as an associate professor at MIT, where I direct a research group called Signal Kinetics. My team investigates um, IoT, Internet of Things technologies that enable new capabilities that were not possible before. Uh, we do things like we could measure your heart rate from a distance through walls uh, without requiring any any sensor on your body to enabling robots to see things that are invisible to the human eye Mm -hmm. and and I love the fact that we take our technologies from the lab and into the real world but also professionally (laughs) I'm originally from Lebanon um, and I've been in the U.S. for the past 10 years now so uh, on a personal level I identify as an Arab as a Muslim as a Lebanese and as an American all at the same time.
0: Wonderful. Uh, you're so passionate and uh, I deeply appreciate that. So I'm curious about your childhood. How was your childhood was? Do you have any memories about your childhood uh, if you remember?
1: Um, a lot of memories. I mean, I grew up in Lebanon. Uh, I apparently from a very young age, I really loved puzzles. Uh, mm. During school, I remember being fascinated with science because it felt like magic. I loved science fiction. And science felt like it all was magic, you, and suddenly you're able to understand these things and they come to life. So I definitely remember uh, a lot of that as part of my childhood. I apparently really liked to tinker with things and break our computer at home, uh, just as a way to figure out what each different component did. Uh, so these are my scientific memories uh, from my childhood while growing up.
0: Wonderful. Yeah. Do you remember what is the first system you built? What is is first Maybe I don't know when you saw undergrad student and what kind of question you had in mind that you makes motivated to what you're doing right now?
1: Uh, I I would say like I built a lot of systems, of course, in undergrad, you start with more defined research projects that you're trying to do, that you're trying to build for a class. Um, But then I when I started having the agency to choose my own uh, my own research direction, I was gravitated towards things that would sound like um, superpowers, like things that were not possible. What science, I think, is, uh, take can take us. Um, so my first, the first research project where I had a lot of agency was actually during grad school, where I was researching whether you could use Wi-Fi to see through walls. And I, I would say that this was the first time that I really started with the project from its early conception all the way to building out a practical system
0: mm-hmm. and how you get this ideas i don't know what kind of inspiration because what you do is power and like for example in phd how you get this because i think what's what's really hard is how to get to the right question and the right problem so how, how you manage to do that
1: that's a It's really part of a research environment and research group that you are part of. So the first in my first year, throughout my first year during grad school, I was um, in a lab which was directed by my advisor, uh, Dina Katabi. um, And she had all of these sort of creative ideas. And we had a lot of technical knowledge in wireless, which was an area that attracted me personally. And then towards, and I was involved with multiple different projects. I really wanted to build a lot of my skills and make sure that I first understand what is out there before I try to go ahead and uh, invent things that were not possible before. Uh, And my advisor always pushed us to think outside the box and think about what are the the big problems and creative problems that we can address. And we always, there was always the question of why. We have to justify why, like, why is this not working? Or why why did you get this result? Can you explain this result? And I remember at some point we were in the lab and uh, we were running experiments, putting actually um, antennas on robots. And uh, what we wanted to do is to optimize wireless performance to make throughput faster uh, of, of uh, Wi-Fi by moving sort of the robot to a better position. And we would move it to a better position. And then every once in a while, the signal that we were getting between the transmitter and the receiver would sometimes, it would become very bad um, mm-hmm. and the throughput would go down. And we we're like, we just moved the robot to a good place and the robot is in its own room. So we knew in, in wireless that there's always this thing called noise. And then I realized that there's this, uh, that there's this cleaning person who was walking back and forth behind the, the, the wall. And every time they would walk back and forth, the throughput was plummet. And inspired by my my advisor who would push us to always ask why, I started thinking why. And traditionally, people knew this. People knew that this causes noise, this causes the channel to become bad. But then I started thinking, maybe this is something that is useful. Maybe there's information there. And maybe this noise itself is a way for us to understand this environment. And this is really what kicked off this whole project of, this is not noise. This is actually information in the signal that is coming back and we can use it to, uh, to see through walls and start tracking people uh, and open up a lot of applications that we ourselves did not think were possible. And this came full circle to childhood uh, uh, dreams of, of superpowers and being able to uh, push technology and science to do things that sound like magic. Mm-hmm.
0: That's very interesting. Um, I, I don't know if that's something, how you managed to do that. Is it something intuitively or, because maybe sometimes people can like miss this kind of, it just maybe noise. I, I, how did you connect with that? Because the student maybe sometimes has a moment then, and they don't figure out that would lead to something they never expected. Maybe counterintuitive sometimes.
1: I'm sure I've missed a lot of situations. I, I, I'm sure I've missed a lot of opportunities. I, I, the basic issue is that when something. Uh, In science, you know, when we learn things in school, we really want to try to fit things into constructs that we've understood, but in science, the main thing when we're researchers, we want to question every result that we're that we're getting, especially when we're doing experimental work. And also as engineers, we can take this questioning and try to tinker around with it so that we can play and start understanding where this source is coming from. And over the past years now, a lot of it with my students, most of our discoveries happen when something doesn't make sense. We wanna try to run new experiments in order for us to like get good results, but then these <laughs> results are not happening. And so when they are not happening, we start investigation, investigating why that is the case. And that really is what leads us, leads us to new discoveries. And then we start thinking about, okay, so this is very exciting, but how can we transform this into something that is useful and that can have implica- applications in the world that can benefit society at
0: large. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. So I think from this start, you became more interested about sensing in general. I think that's something in the main, and I, when I'm speaking about, also about robotics or soft robotics, sensing is so challenging, how you can design the sensor that can sense environment with less energy and how, yeah, the accuracy would look like can tell us more about the sensing itself, and um, why it's so challenging? What are the questions you're trying to answer through your lab uh, for design sensors?
1: So my lab develops sensors. Uh, act- actually, it's a sensor-first lab, so we think about sensing as a fundamental primitive, and we try to think about how we could sense it. And we think a lot about what can we sense that was not possible to sense before, but how can we also develop sensors for, uh, it- for extreme environments to enable societal and ecological applications? And we it really depends. So we focus, for example, on sensing for robotics, on sensing for health, and on sensing for uh, climate and oceans. Uh, and each of them, we're always thinking about how can we push the boundaries. Probably the most relevant one is in the context of uh, robotics, where we're thinking about how can we build robots to sense things that uh, they cannot see. So over the past Few, probably for, for the longest time, people have been building robots that enable artificial intelligence, which is intelligence that is like humans. And we try to build the best types of robots that could, and we think that the best robots are the ones that are more similar to humans. But once you're building machines, you can augment machines with sensing capabilities that are not accessible to us as humans. And maybe then you can enable robots to do things that are complementing people, rather than necessarily replacing people or becoming more like people. And we are coming, and I've been very impressed and excited about the work that has been happening in the robotics over the past, probably five to 10 years, especially. And we started thinking even like very recently, okay, people are trying to build robots that can see like humans, but what what if you could build robots with superhuman perception? And coming from a background with uh, wireless and RF, we know that wireless signals can go through walls, which is why you can get Wi-Fi from another room. And so we started thinking about maybe we can build robots that could see things that are not visible to the human eye uh, by using wireless signals. And that's what led us down to, okay, today there's a lot of interest in these robots that do, for example, piece picking for a lot of industrial applications, um, as well as human robot interaction applications. And we realized that, for example, by tagging objects with batteryless RF sensors, a robot can start seeing an item under a pile, which it could not do with vision. If you have, if you give a robot a camera, it cannot see an item under a pile, but once it can see this item, it can maneuver towards it and pick it up uh, um, and and then grasp it uh, and hand it over, for example, to the human, making the whole process much more efficient because now this robot has superhuman perception rather than uh, human vision. Mm Great. I
0: think this is be interesting now. Because I think most of the work in robotics, or soft robotics for example, bio-inspired. And, and you mentioned something that how we can push the capabilities beyond what we already have. So if you can just about the technique you use, this is a limitation or something you, I don't know if you have any ideas, curious ideas that you want to do something also beyond what we already have when it comes to vision as a human. That one example you mentioned, I don't know if you have any other ideas or limitations you think or features or do you think about? So there
1: is this sort of this general technology. I could also talk about the other things that we do, which is also highly relevant to robotics. So for example, one of the areas that we work on is micro implants inside the human body. So over the past probably 10 years now, I've been researching wireless sensing for human health. So how can you use the wireless signals that are around you in order for you to learn about humans? So we talked about seeing through walls, but... Uh, one way to think about wireless is that we're living in a sea of waves that we that are invisible to our eyes. Uh, but then you could start building smart environments that could like monitor these waves. So every small movement that I do, I'm moving my hands now. I'm talking. I'm breathing. My heart is beating. All of these are associated with small movements. But now, when you try to sense these wireless signals, it's almost as if you're sensing noise, right? So there's so much of this noise, and how do you make sense? of this noise. And so uh, uh, the work that we've done in wireless sensing, this can also be applied to robotics, enabling robots to understand humans. I mean, there's this whole field of human-robot interaction, but what if you can also understand, like perceive how people are moving or even discover their emotions? Maybe there's this person who's stressed working with me. Uh, um, And one of the projects that we had even a few years ago was this, uh, that you could use wireless signals to recognize human emotions because you're measuring the heartbeats and the breathing and there's this whole field in computer science called effective computing that allows you to use biosignals to infer emotions. Funny enough, that project, when it came out in uh, when it was published, the producers of the Big Bang Theory decided to create a, an entire episode making fun of how MIT scientists developed a, a, built a device that can recognize human emotions. But over the past few years, we've also been interested in going into the human body. And how you can uh, how you can start uh, uh, sensing the human body from the inside. Our technologies for sensing the human body from the outside have already been deployed for monitoring people with Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, COVID, even COVID-19. But now we're starting to think about how you can mo- how you can also even monitor the body from the inside and even treat it. And this is what my uh, student, who recently just defended, uh, his name is Mohammed Abdul Hamid. For the past um, for the past four years, he's been investigating can we build batteryless micro implants that can sense the human body from the inside? And this is on my side. So he was very excited it, 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 in building these microchips. What I want is can we build uh, micro robots inside the body that are also batteryless that can move inside the human body and monitor it? And maybe if they identify there's something wrong, that is fix it uh, there that is uh, potentially fix it. Uh, So this is sort of a a, there's always a long term vision of what we want to do over maybe a decade, two decades, 50 years, 100 years from now, and how we can translate these into projects that were towards that, that we can impact the world uh, in the in the near field. And then there's this third direction that we work on, which is underwater. Uh, You know, uh, I started being very interested in uh, the oceans about maybe four years ago. uh, And A lot of this was driven by a desire for us to be able to understand the climate change. Climate change starts in the ocean. The oceans are heating, and that's what and that's uh, what impacts us, uh, uh, sort of even as humans afterwards. But also, life starts in the ocean. Everything starts uh, with water, Uh, and so as we started looking into the oceans, we uh, uh, started looking at the literature and realized that more than eighty percent of the ocean has never been observed or explored. Um, What's crazy is that we know more about the far side of the moon moon and the surface of uh, uh, Mars than we know about the depth of our oceans, which is where life starts. So we started, my team started thinking about how we can develop sensing technologies for us to understand and decode the ocean. And we realized that one of the biggest challenges in the ocean is that uh, it's actually very difficult to deploy sensors and have them stay there for a very long period of time. And one of the reasons it's hard to deploy sensors is because they need to have energy and it's difficult to to, to, put, a, to put a battery that lasts for a long period of time. So for example, if I have my phone, my phone is plugged in and my phone <laughs> gets recharged, uh, I can recharge it every day. But if I put a sensor in the ocean and it has a battery, in order for me to recharge it, I need to send a ship pay between thirty dollars and $70,000 a day to replace its battery yeah. and come back. And that got us thinking about ways that we could develop sensor technologies for the ocean that don't require any batteries. Um, and over the past few years, we've been developing that. But then we realized recently that that has also applications in underwater navigation because now you can send a robot and you would not lose a robot because it could use these sensors also to find itself. It's almost like you have an underwater GPS uh, in the ocean for navigation. So a lot of these um, sort of ideas, whether it's in the robotics space or whether it's in the health or whether it's for uh, ocean Mm -hmm. sensing, they are at the intersection of sensing, but also perception and decision making, helping us as humans understand our environment, but also building new tools that allow us to interact with this environment in ways that were not possible before.
0: Wonderful, yeah. But I'm curious about maybe uh, when it comes to, for example, open-ended environment, and you mentioned the sensor as already, don't rely on battery. I don't know what limitation do you think observation, because uh, for example, one of the projects you, you used already metamaterials materials to design that kind of sensor. But if you can tell them more about how you managed to do that, what kind of still limitation or questions you still have or something you still hard to understand how this may be de- 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 deploying the system.
1: Uh, right yeah
0: so yeah
1: the, the one thing that i would say is that there are so many limitations <laughs> to the to the extent that we are just starting to demonstrate the feasibility so for example you just asked about the underwater uh project mm-hmm. um we just demonstrated that it is possible to build batteryless sensors okay for for underwater and we demonstrated that it is possible to use them for underwater localization so you could use them for localization but then are so many questions. How do you enable these sensors on the electronic side so that they can last for a very long period of time? How do you build the material so that they can last for a long time? How do you reduce their power consumption even more? How do you integrate them with different sensors so that they can sense their environments? If you think even from a robotic side, how do you build underwater navigation systems that rely on these battery sensors as anchors? So GPS, you have satellites there in specific positions in space, but these sensors don't have any batteries. So how do you build these? this control that allows you to navigate? How do you combine these with visual odometry so that you can have, I mean, when you're using vision and then you're using, they use acoustic signals, how do you combine these multimodal to enable better navigation? Uh, how do you enable robotic grasping in underwater environments? So today there's, this is growing, but if you wanna build underwater infrastructures, uh, or even if you wanna send something to repair a habitat, to recover underwater habitats for, for uh, um, animals how do you go ahead and uh, and build these that can manipulate their environment by combining vision with uh, with acoustic sensing how do you build make them at ultra low power uh, how do you build these systems that can map the invo- the underwater environments we jo- we're just talking that 80% of the ocean has never been observed or explored which ne- me- means that we need to send robots that can explore them but how do they uh, use for example batterless gps in order to navigate but also combine it with vision and uh, understand where they are. The limitations are of course way more than the possibilities. Mm-hmm. And this is what is exciting about research. It's the fact that we, you demonstrate something that something is possible, but then how do you overcome these, uh, mm-hmm. these, uh, uh, these problems to deliver on the vision and deliver on the new applications. And frankly, it's the same thing, whether it's for the micro implants inside the body or whether it's for the robotic grasping items, all of these have much more limitations than, uh, than what we've already demonstrated, which is as scientists very exciting because there's a long path um, towards impact. Hopefully, mm-hmm.
0: great. When you look for that sensing design, you think if there's any direction we have to give much more attention or focus? What could be that maybe the main component you think we have to give much attention or focus when it design is sensors?
1: Um. I think it really depends on the research style. So as I operate across fields, I really enjoy uh, having sort of doing interdisciplinary work across fields. And I think scientists should operate in what they enjoy. So there's certain types of researchers that really enjoy the application, thinking about things from an application perspective. So, for, I mean, I see this in my students as well, some of them are much more driven by the application and the applications are themselves hard and they also open up what are the problems with the. Um, with the systems themselves like they open up interdisciplinary problems so, for example, um, I have re- students in my group who are very passionate about uh, like uh, underwater ecology, so they want to build these sensors to understand underwater environments and over there. The challenges are in system integration. System integration is very hard because it requires a large breadth and also how do you interface a lot of these sensors together. Then there's other types of researchers who really enjoy their disciplines. And so, for example, whether it's in the electronics, whether it's in the robotics, whether it's in the material, and each of these have also subdomains within them. And over there, there's also a lot of open problems. And I think it's the, the space is so large that the way I see it and the way I also interact with my students is I ask them what they are passionate about. And we try to identify problems based on what they're passionate about from a, a technique perspective, because there is way more problems than there are than there are solutions out there.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. I don't know if you have any kind of thoughts, maybe what kind of features or kind of functionality do you, do you think for sensor you want to have? Do you, I don't know if you have any crazy ideas with, about implementation for in, in your sensor. I, do you have any kind of thoughts or idea about that? If you think about
1: it, yeah. Um, so in the sense of what would I like to sense that is not possible?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So the first thing that I would like to do is, is to even sense things that are possible but at scale. So for example, I want to really be able to, un- can we understand the ocean at scale with underwater measurements? So sometimes there, you might be able to build, um, the sensors might exist but it's very difficult to deploy them and get information from them. Other times, it's about how can I use reuse an existing sensor to sense something that people did not think was possible? So, for example, using wireless to sense the yeah. environment when people were using wireless primarily for communication. Um, I think much more from a, a domain perspective in trying to understand, like, I'm very interested for, from an in-body perspective, um, to be able to understand the, um, for example, can you monitor tumors in uh, in in better ways? Can you, what types of sensors that you do? So I also collaborate with researcher with material scientists the researchers who build new, for example, flexible electronics, um, and we think together about how we integrate these flexible electronics at ultra low power to do long term monitoring to be able to do prediction and early intervention rather than having to do it uh, uh, sort of after. Uh, doing things at much earlier stages allows us enables better prognosis and better diagnosis. Uh, And we work with medical doctors who sometimes come to us with new types of problems. So for these types of applications, I go to the domain experts who are already working there and we collaborate together in order for us to be able to to identify what is the right type of sensor to build. Personally, I'm just, I'm excited about what is something that we could do that was not possible before. um, And what, that we could do at the same time to also solve real problems that are facing society so mm-hmm. it's sort of a and at the same time it is hard so there's like three criteria for any research project a it's sort of like magic uh b is it's technically hard and c is it can solve a real problem facing society or uh, or ecology
0: mm-hmm. wonderful so i case about the learning when you design the sensor for example you have different yeah application for that but when it comes to learning the continual learning or be, being adaptable and have this kind of generic yeah they can adapt to different scenario and sense something yeah whatever do you think how do you think about learning and this continual learning as well for the data you get from the sensors
1: learning is um, so we we adopt also learning models in our in our own um, in a lot of our systems Learning is too, there's some generic types of learning and then there's domain specific. And I, my expertise is more on the domain specific learning
0: mm-hmm. of the
1: environment. So for example, if you think about wireless signals you wanna use them to learn the environment and understand how the environment is changing but the environment around them always changes. So you need to be able to adapt to a changing environment, right? So there you need to some form of continuous learning but also with, dom- with some level of uh, domain adaptation. Sometimes uh, we also work on reinforcement learning, where you uh, where the the problem is so complex. So, for example, in when it comes, especially when it comes to wireless, the problem itself is is um, you do not observe them. So, as humans, it's a bit difficult for us to understand them. So, we develop learning models that could, uh, uh, based on simulations, that come up with things that are much better crafted than humans could do. Just because you can. They, can, they have a way of perceiving the environment in a much better way.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: so when it comes to learning, there's uh, yeah, different types of learning that are highly dependent on the, on the domain. And what we do is we try to open up sort of the, the, the models and incorporate uh, features that are specific to the sensors themselves, whether it's wireless, for example, with RF, uh, radio frequency signals, there are specific properties that if you incorporate them, the whole learning models becomes much simpler. And so it becomes easier to, to train uh, these models. I
0: mm-hmm. there's ask you: There's something maybe I don't know through your work, um, the result you got was counterintuitive or surprising. Maybe through the way of thinking or the models, you expect the certain result. But when you try to go to a real application, it was counterintuitive or surprising. You didn't expect certain, those results. I don't know if you have any scenario like that happened to you. Uh,
1: it happens almost all the time, and it always happens when something actually works. <laughs> you know, in science, you don't know why it doesn't work. You don't know why it works, but then suddenly it works. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my uh, sort of my earliest experiences was when I was building this, dev- this device that can track um, uh, people using wireless signals, and the first time that it actually Uh, the way I was working was probably midnight in the lab and I was trying to track a robot because I was the only person I was programming the wire. And the first time it worked tracking it through the wall, I was definitely surprised that it worked because sometimes something works on paper, but it's very difficult for it to work in practice. Then the first time we showed that you could use wireless signals to get heartbeats was also to some extent a shock. Uh, It was very surprising. How do you get sort of heartbeats, which are tiny, tiny, changes inside the body, how are you even able to extract them using wireless signals? And then we had to go to the medical literature and try to understand why that is hap- Why that is possible to happen. Uh, most recently, probably, the fact that we were able to build sensors that can communicate underwater without requiring any batteries was mm-hmm. definitely uh, very, was was surprising in the sense that they were able to work. But then we took them and we started deploying them in the Charles River, which is right across from MIT. And then they stopped working and we did not know why they were not working. Every time you take something and you put it in a more complex environment, it becomes harder. And so then we started understanding the environment and bringing in our technical expertise from an engineering perspective. And then we, in order for us to overcome the challenges and get them to work again. If we're not being surprised, it probably means that we're not working on a sufficiently, um, on a sufficiently ambitious project. Uh, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And do you think simulation sometimes, because we speak about simulation to reality yet, yeah, do you think simulation for, for your work, I don't know, could be safe time sometimes is to give you insights about this kind of complex environment or still that a lot of work do you think we have to do for simulating this complex environment?
1: To be honest, even a a small amount of simulation, I mean, with with, uh, learning models that have a large number of parameters, Mm -hmm. being able to do simulations always performs, uh, always gets you really much better results. Uh, The simple fact of being able to do simulations, and of course, developing better simulation models can reduce the amount of training that you need to do in the real world. Simulations are particularly important when you are trying to operate in 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 environments where collecting data is hard or where you might not even be able to be there to collect data. I mean, think about underwater environments. You're sending something to an area that you've never been before, right? So how do you, so you cannot even train over there. So you need to try to develop a simulation uh, environment that can try to get you sufficient with sufficient approximation to it with some level of modeling, but you also want to be able to, 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 mod- to extend it to scenarios that you might not have seen. And in those mm-hmm. settings, you have to do it in simulations.
0: Mm-hmm, great. So I'm just asking you about the redundancy or resilience or this, this kind of scenario failure of sensing. How, how do you manage this kind of, you still have this kind of sensor still sensing if there's damage happening or, I don't know, scenario like that.
1: So we've actually seen that a lot when we try taking our technologies, not just from the lab to the the world, but also to practical deployments for monitoring people. Like, for example, with our sensors, monitoring people at home over long periods of time. And you start seeing there's so many of these these different failure modes. And there's usually two ways of addressing them. A is, like, for example, one, one standard approach that we use is multimodal sensing, where you use sensors such that their failure modes are like one type of sensor fails where another one doesn't or vice versa. Um, the other way that we could do it is sometimes significant engineering effort just to make sure that you're not giving a false uh, a false output when it is in a mission-critical scenario. So for example, for the first one where you have multimodal sensing, if you think about uh, RF to be able to see things through occlusions, we also use vision. So we combine vision with RF and then... Vision can see things at high resolution, but it cannot see through occlusion. So its failure mode or its inefficiency mode is when something is occluded. RF, on the other hand, or wireless signals or radio frequency signals, can see things see things through occlusions, but they have poor resolution. So this is one of the most beautiful sort of scenarios where you have two sensing modalities that are um, that are complementary, and where their failure modes are. Uh, to some extent, mutually exclusive. And so when one fails, the other one works or when one where one shines, the other one has, uh, has limitations.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. And I'm curious to ask you about, well, I don't know what could be the future, do you think for five years coming for designing the sensor? Do you have any kind of, yeah, current kind of unavoidable trade off when you design the sensor? I don't know if through designing, this is something you can get over this trade off and envision that something maybe can be improved in the coming years from real life, yeah.
1: I love that question. Um, And my answer to it has always been, I don't think that, I I actually don't think that things, when you think about a system perspective, there are very, very few things and I'm not even sure what they are, which are not possible, which are not possible Mm -hmm. to overcome. If you were to think about it from a specific discipline perspective, then that might be the case, right? Which is why abstractions are, between disciplines are great sort of discipline boundaries are great, but they're also sometimes very problematic because when you have abstractions of of disciplines, then if you're thinking about a specific type of sensor, like for example, can I use a camera to see through walls? An optical camera, that's probably very hard or near, near impossible. But if I were to change the question and say, can I see through walls? And then I go to, for example, then that's how we think about RF. Uh, for example as wireless uh, sensing you could think about the same thing with um, with underwater can i uh, can i achieve uh, barrierless communication underwater are you going to be using the existing methods of uh, uh, symmetric communication the answer is no if you were to change it to asymmetric communication then suddenly you start being able to think so sometimes the question is what are your assumptions and if you go ahead and change one of the assumptions or, or change the problem itself, then we would be able to overcome a lot of the challenges.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So um, here's the skew because we close the end about the part of translation from what we do in the lab to industry. I think that's the question, how we can do, make sure what we do is really beneficial to the people. I think that's what we are trying to do. But what could be the um, component or, I don't know, how we make sure that's happening, this kind of reproducible sensors as well and how, how, how you, you
1: see this question yeah so there's different ways of the of doing this and I can tell you what our own style is of course in research there are two types of research there is in general there's curiosity driven research and there are use driven use uh, driven research right and we try to in my group we try to really operate at the the boundaries of the two curiosity driven research is good in and of itself, because you need to explore. Like sometimes we need to know, we need to get negative results as well. I mean, maybe something is possible, but maybe we realize that it's not the right way to do it. So curiosity driven research is good in and of itself. We try to choose things at the boundaries where we start with the curiosity, is this possible? And then over time we start moving it from, oh, is this possible to how can we deploy it in the real world? Uh, Probably my, and I think this drive is, in and of itself having this drive of being able to deploy it in the real world is a, a strong incentive for people to see it probably the earliest example for me is we started with can you see through walls with wi-fi mm-hmm. but then we moved it to how can we use this for real world applications and we realized healthcare is the right application domain there and then we started thinking okay now we started deploying it out of the lab and into the real world and a lot of the research that we had done up to that was very helpful and now it's used to monitor thousands of patients and for example, now in my group, we're doing this again with some of the work that we've done with, uh, with RFID perception early on. Uh, when I started as a faculty around five years ago, we started by thinking, okay, can we do time of flight measurements on batteryless sensors, which was something that people thought were, were not, was not possible. And then over the years, we've demonstrated that it is possible. We've combined it with automation. And again, now we're taking this out of the lab and into the real world. And we face all new types of problems but we're building a lot on what we've done before and trying to uh, demonstrate practical use cases in automation and warehousing and logistics uh, and so on. So this, I, I, I think if people want, it is possible to follow through from moonshot ideas to the real world and maintaining both connections with disciplines, uh, with people's own disciplines, because there's a lot of smart people in science, but also there's a lot of smart people in industry who understand uh, what are the real problems on the ground, and being able to bridge these is for us a very happy medium uh, to stay in, so that we also know that we're working on relevant problems.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm curious to speak about the negative result. Do you think that there's a pressure, because we know there's pressure published most of the time, I don't know if that's something affecting you when you have this curiosity to certain project, and it's affecting you or not at all?
1: So... Uh, Personally, I find myself trying to, for example, push my students to think about uh, what is the long-term impact rather than uh, what is the the minimum publishable unit. It's also writing really good papers is hard. If you want to write papers that are very accessible to a broad audience that can have a lot of impact is is hard. Negative results can be folded into positive results as well, um, in the sense that you could say, look, I tried all of these things, they did not work. Uh, And I tried these things, uh, and and they actually worked. So in my group, we try to not publish a lot of papers, actually, intentionally. Mm. And we try to build systems and and deploy them into the real world. world. I actually think there is a misconception that a larger number of papers is better, like that people will measure by the number of papers. You probably don't remember Einstein by his number of papers, right? You remember by... The, for example, the 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 the, the, like E equals MC squared, uh, uh, or or the duality between uh, sort of uh, light and uh, and matter. And at the end of the day, people in the long run are remembered by core contributions much more than it's. It's actually not a great thing to be say. Probably only in academia, people would appreciate. Oh, this person has this number of papers. Uh, It is much better to say that this person demonstrated that this thing is possible, uh, right? So people to be known for specific things or that they are pushing things. And so this is where my role as an advisor is to help my students not be stuck in rabbit holes, but also to guide them towards thinking about big problems and how we can also uh, divide them into publishable things because research itself, I mean, the other type of learning is research itself is a learning process, the end of which we teach the world. so we want to make sure that we are learning, not just producing uh, mm. um, output. And part of it is we have the luxury of doing that because we are in systems, so we have to build things to show that they work. Um, and then we have to deploy them to show that they are also useful.
0: Thanks so much for your So it you have a few questions. Do you think ego is important for you as a researcher? Because sometimes you have this new idea of something, and do you think in academia sometimes, it could be sometimes an ego-driven system. So- you have ego when it comes to discussing your ideas or
1: you know there's uh, i think there's two different types of there's different ways of talking about it right ego in and of itself is not good so you need some level of self-confidence that is important but you also want to be i think ignorance of that something is not going to work is more valuable than ego that it will work in the sense that you want to have you want to be in an area where actually a little bit more ignorant and be able to ask questions that show how ignorant you are. But you also want a, I'd say, a personal drive, a certain level of confidence that you will be able to follow through. Because research, you're always sort of battling against the wall. And this is, I think this is actually quite common at, at MIT in the sense that I remember being, uh, when, I, when I came as a grad student, sitting with my advisor, And I was like, and she would ask all of these questions that I was like, isn't she like concerned about sounding like not smart or dumb for asking these questions? And Mm -hmm. I realized that in fact, if you were to ask her about her area, her primary area of research, then she is an expert in that area. She would probably like argue with the the, the person up until the last last bit. But if it's a new area, you want to be able to, uh, you want to embrace your ignorance so that you can learn. And I've, I've adopted that as well. So for example, if I'm in a new area, I'm, I don't have a problem uh, being thought of as ignorant because I'm probably ignorant in that area. And that is how you develop your expertise by learning. So not shying away from it, but also having the confidence in our own earlier contributions that, I mean, if, if someone is going to come and ask me about things that I've published on, then I might as well really know how to defend them to, to the last bit. And this is also part of being, uh, what I started by saying is that I enjoy thinking about moonshot ideas, but also investigating them with scientific rigor so that we really understand what we're talking about.
0: Wonderful. So I don't know what could be the most important quality you have gained uh, so far, being in academia or maybe the research. That could be the most important quality.
1: Um, I think the hardest and most important quality is probably how do you balance Mm. between um, questioning yourself and also being able to drive things forward. In the Mm -hmm. sense that when people are working on, research is always working on some level of risky ideas. So, and you're going to get most of the time more negative feedback than positive feedback. So, Mm How, at what stage do, does this negative feedback, when, how do you learn how to internalize it and say, look, I need to pivot, like push or pivot, right? Proceed or pivot. Having the, developing the judgment of knowing to proceed or pivot is the hardest quality. And I would say this is not just in research, it's also in advising, like how I advise my students and how, how I mentor my students. Do I keep doing the same thing or do I pivot to a different approach? Uh, or even in life at large, like do you keep doing the same thing, or you pivot. Uh, This, the the best quality is a a, a fine, a refined judgment of knowing of proceed or pivot. And this is very hard in in any field and in any aspect of one's life. And it's particularly important in research, because you need to know every day, should I keep Mm -hmm. moving forward? Or should I pivot? Uh, based on all the negative feedback that I'm getting um, as well, which, which is much more uh, than the positive feedback that we get in research.
0: Absolutely. This is very profound. Yeah. first um, What is your favorite book? I don't know, maybe in the field or outside the field? What is your favorite book?
1: In my field or outside the field?
0: Yeah, as you like. Maybe a book stick to mind and you would like to share with the audience.
1: So frankly, I invest much more time in uh, uh, reading papers than reading books. Okay. I, I probably I review more than hundred papers per year. Um, when I read books, I actually read more books on like coaching and mm-hmm. uh, and management because as a as a faculty, I mean, I have to. I, I'm also to some extent a manager, and that was the area that I had least training in.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: so probably my my best. Uh, books, the books that I usually recommend are more on how do you develop your management skills? Because these are things that I wish people, um, that I wish people uh, Mm -hmm. learn more about, because especially when you're managing or coaching other people, I think an advisor is primarily a mentor and a coach. um, Mm -hmm. And you're influencing people in ways beyond what you believe. So it will probably be in that rather than a technical book
0: yeah great. yeah. And I'm curious ask you what is the aspiration maybe and what you're doing? what are your aspiration
1: um, Well, there's different levels of aspiration, but yeah. probably leaving a positive impact um, on humanity for a very long mm-hmm. time. Um, that would be the, the ultimate um, aspiration and trying to maximize the, that level of posit- that level of positive impact mm
0: mm-hmm and lastly be the best advice was given to you and was life changing advice stick to your mind
1: the best advice that was given to me yeah, oh my yeah. goodness i've benefited from an enormous amount of advice i'm not sure if um if, if there if there is just one specific one um technically uh, i i the advice was basically keep questioning anything, any result, just question it to the core before others question it for you. Um, Being ambitious, being hardworking, there's the standard things, but also I would say a more general piece of advice is Mm -hmm. probably be empathetic um, with anyone that that you're working with. It's probably more important than anything else because we are researchers, but we are primarily humans.
0: Thanks so much, Pat. It was such an honor and pleasure to see you. Thank you and thank you for your time. It is my
1: pleasure.